are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Reshat Kasaba. I am the director of Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, and on behalf of my colleagues and my students in the Jackson School, it is my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's presentation. I also want to say hello to our audience who is in the overflow room upstairs, and they're watching it from the screen and hopefully they will be part of this conversation. There will be a question and answer after the talk. We have microphones on either side of the room. We ask you to come and uh, ask your questions from those microphones. The overflow questions will be brought to me and we will try to cover as many of those as we can. Professor Snyder will sign his books, his latest book, which is outside in the hallway, and after the lecture is finished, we will usher him outside and he will sign books there, and you can also have continue your informal conversations with him for a little bit out there. I want to thank uh, the Henry M. Jackson Foundation, Strom Center for Jewish Studies, Russian, Eastern European, and Central Asian Studies, Center for West European Studies, Center for Global Studies, and also the Foster School's Global Business Center for their support. And if you look at all these uh, entities who extended their support for this event, you get a sense of the uh, reach that Timothy Snyder's name has and the interest that this lecture has provoked uh, in our community. Timothy Snyder is the 11th professor of history at Yale University. He is a member of the Committee on Conscience of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And he is also a permanent, permanent fellow of the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. He is the author of Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin, Black Earth, the Holocaust as History and Warning, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, and also most recently, The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, and America. And that is the book that will be available outside for purchase and, and for his signature. Among the many prizes and recognitions uh, Professor Snyder has received. I would like to mention the Literature Award of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, Hannah Arendt Prize, and also the Leipzig Book Award for European Understanding. In his research and writings, Timothy Snyder deals with some very dark periods and dark subjects. He deals with the destruction of East and Central Europe during World War II, with Holocaust and its significance for European and world history. But a main point that comes across from Professor Snyder's writing 
is that these horrible events of the 20th century resulted from the murderous desires and plans of individuals. And he has a very strong conviction that we all have a duty not only to understand these events, but also to resist the drift to chaos and tyranny whenever we see it and reclaim our own history. History in Tim Snyder's hands then becomes not just a window to the past, but an important tool for managing our lives and shaping our future. And this is precisely why we in the Jackson School place so much emphasis on history in our teaching, research, and outreach. And this is why Tim Snyder is a perfect speaker for the Jackson School. I am very pleased to introduce Timothy Snyder, who will speak on 20 lessons, 20 lessons from the 20th century. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So thank you all very much for, for being here. Thanks to, the, to, thanks to you who are physically present. Thanks to you who are almost physically present. <laughs> I'm glad to have you all here or almost here, as the case may be. Uh, what I'd like to do in the next 45 minutes, hour or so, is talk to you about history. Uh, history, not in the sense of something which is a boring book that you have to read. And by the way, those of you who are here because you have to be from your history classes, a special welcome to y'all. Um, <laughs> by, 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 by history, what I mean is not a book that you don't want to read or something that you put away. What, by history, I mean the thing that we are all in together. Um, unlike other disciplines, there is only one history. There's just one. There's only one set of human beings. That's us and the people we're descended from. There's only one set of written sources. All the written sources we have, all of history comes from those written sources. There's only one set, that's it. There's just one history. And so much of deciding to do good or to do evil in politics comes from recognizing whether or not you're in history. It comes from asking whether or not you're in history. That's why the first lesson of this book, this little book on tyranny, which I'm talking about this evening, the first lesson of this book is don't obey in advance. Now, this lesson has everything to do with history. In the most straightforward sense, it's a lesson from history. It's a lesson from 1933. When we think of the rise of dictators like Adolf Hitler, who came to power in 1933, we can think of overpowering tyrants who, you know, somehow with their superhuman powers immediately were able to control everyone. Um, images flash through our minds of, of salutes and marches and armies. But in fact, it's politics. And especially at the beginning, it's politics. And politics involves consent. Especially at the beginning of authoritarian regime changes, and if you don't know what an authoritarian regime change feels like, I hope you will by the end of this lecture, because you're in one. Um, at, the, um, at, the, at the, nervous laughter, at the, at, at, at the beginning, Authoritarian regime changes depend upon consent. Um, that is, they depend upon people normalizing the new reality and then meeting it halfway, anticipating what it's going to want. 
which is a normal human reaction. That's what we generally do in normal situations. So you're expected to sit down, you do. I'm expected to stand up and talk, I'm doing that. 99% of the time, it's normal to try to figure out what the social situation is and react to it. But in order to be a free person, you have to be able to define a situation as not being normal and to define for yourself what's normal. If every situation is normal to you, if you'll adapt to every situation, that means that you're not a free person. Right? And the lesson of 1933 is precisely this, that if we don't think about it, if we just react, we'll react in the wrong way. We have to have an idea of not obeying in advance. And that idea comes from history. It comes from 1933. There's a, there's a politics to this. And the politics is the sooner you act, the better. Um, the sooner you act, the better. There's a psychology to this, which is that if you decide at the beginning that you're going to say this is not normal, then you have a very good chance of doing something meaningfully later on. But if you decide at the beginning this is fine, it's very hard to go back from that. What you'll tend to do is psychologically keep doubling down on your earlier decision and say, well, I didn't do anything then, therefore this must be fine, and therefore you become a prisoner as things continue to get worse. Morally, if you don't resist at the beginning, then you become the person who didn't resist at the beginning for yourself and for others forever. Right? So this is about history not just because it's a lesson from history. It's, a le it's, it's about history because it, it, it's a very good example of what history is. History is about structure and agency. It's about recognizing the limits of what you can and can't do. And once you recognize those limits, then you face the fact that you're responsible within those limits for what you do and what you don't do, right? It's so very easy to take part in ideas like whatever I do doesn't make a difference or everything's going to be fine or everything's not going to be fine regardless of what I do. That's a historical choice that you're making, right? Those ideas are very tempting. It's a little bit harder to say, I'm going to define for myself what's normal, what's not normal, and I'm going to act accordingly. That's the first lesson. The other reason why it's the first lesson in this book is that if you fail that one, the other 19 are totally irrelevant. That is to say, if you can't define for yourself what's normal and what's not normal, then you can't be a free person. And the other 19 lessons, you know, beautiful as they might be in other ways, they're not going to be relevant to you, which doesn't mean that you can all leave now, like if I didn't reach you about number one. Um, lesson number two is, don't, lesson number two is um, protect institutions, defend institutions. And the reason why this is the second one is that it's a very fundamental political lesson in the American tradition and others that it's the institutions that make us decent. We have a legend about ourselves and about how we defend freedom, which is that it, you know, the, the, very, the last American you know, alone on some blasted heath will be protecting us from the aliens or whatever it might be. Like that's the image that we like. Or to bring it slightly more down to earth, you know, Tiananmen Square in 1989, the lone, the lone young Chinese man you know, holding off the tank. But he actually got out of the way of that tank. Um, by the time you get down to the one person defending against the onslaught, it's actually all over. That's not what freedom actually looks like. That's what Hollywood tells you freedom looks like. That's not what freedom actually looks like. Freedom requires institutions. Um, and this is what the founders understood. The founders were not uh, American exceptionalists. How could they be American exceptionalists? There was no America. They were trying to create America. And they were trying to create America on the basis of their understanding of human nature, which was, quite understandably, skeptical. 
they did not think that future generations of Americans would naturally happily live within the republic. On the contrary, they thought we have to have institutions like a legislature that checks an executive, like a judiciary that checks them both, like states that check the federal government and vice versa, precisely because we're not perfect. There's a great irony about the way that we look back at the founding fathers, the, the, the men we call the founding fathers. We look back at them as though they were demigods, right? as though their perfection somehow radiates outward towards us and makes us wonderful and exceptional. That would have horrified them. Right? That would have horrified them because their view was that they were flawed human beings and that future generations of Americans would be flawed human beings and therefore we need the institutions. So the second, the second lesson is defend institutions. Um, and that the reason why it's second, again, is that if we, can't get, if we can't get to the institutions, it's very unlikely that we'll be able to do things on our own. Now, there's a historical point to this one, which I'll, I'm going to stay close to Germany in 1933. There are other examples, too. The historical point is that when democracy goes away, it is, as I've already said, because people watch it go away and give their consent. It's also because institutions are gradually eroded. Even in the case of Nazi Germany, which might seem like a very dramatic case, before you get to Hitler, you have people bending the rules and breaking the rules. You have people governing by, um, by doing things which are not specifically forbidden, but which clearly are not in the spirit of, of the Constitution. And then if you look at the 21st century, uh, the 21st century, as I, I'm not sure how many of you have spent that much time in the 21st century. Like a lot of us have been looking at screens for a lot of it, but if, if, you've been, if you've been alive during the 21st century, and looking at screens doesn't count as being alive, by the way, if you've been alive during the 21st century, you might have noticed that it's been a terrible century for democracy. The last 12 years consecutively, according to Freedom House, which by the way is not some crazy left-leaning anti-American institution, um, but the last 12 years actually in a row, um, according to Freedom House, have seen decline in democracy around the world and rise in authoritarianism around the world. Right? Um, and how does that happen? It, it happens step by step. It happens because of something that we now call backsliding. No one stands up one day and says, I've just had a coup d'etat or a revolution. People work step by step by step to change the institution so that at some point, some imperceptible point, they can no longer defend themselves and people can no longer defend them. Now, the special thing for Americans I try to be harder on Americans than anyone else because I think that's what being a patriot means. The special thing about being American is that you think that the institutions, either you don't care about the institutions, like you think, ah, oh, like we're special, we don't really need the institutions. That's one view. Like government is bad, you know, we'll be fine because we're Americans and we're great. Or the other view is the institutions will protect us, right? So this view is wrong. This view is also wrong. The institutions won't protect us on their own. The institutions are only as good as the people who care about them, right? Who know what they are, who care about them, and actually try to make them work. It is oh so easy to fantasize, oh, we don't need institutions. It's also very easy to say, well, the institutions are going to protect us. Every time somebody said that to me in November, December 2016, it took a day off my life, right? Um, <laughs> which is why this might be my last lecture, because people, <laughs> people said that a lot, as you might recall, and people are still saying it. It's not, you can't ask the, the institutions to defend you. You have to ask, what can I do for the institutions? Lesson number three is beware the one-party state. So those of you who are familiar with the history of the, 20, of the 20th century, will, when you think of the one-party state, you'll think of fascism or communism. You might think of Nazi Germany or of the Soviet Union. These were all one-party states. Now, the demons of our collective memory are all one-party states. 
But it's also true that in the 21st century, what tends to happen is that one-party states, now without particularly interesting ideologies, um, now without visions of the future, are also emerging around the world. What's wrong with a one-party state? What, what, what would be, what's the big deal with a one-party state? Well, there, there, there are two things that are wrong. The first is, as you slip from a multi-party system to a one-party system, what happens um, and please tell me that you've, that you, you've noticed this because it's happening now. What happens is that the, the party, one party stops competing on policy and starts betting on being able to change the institution so that it can't lose, right? That's what Jerry, excuse me? Yeah, good, thank you. I'm gonna count on you for the rest of the lessons too. Um, the, um, I would like everyone to know that this gentleman and I have never met. Um, so, that, the, um, so gerrymandering, right? Everything, every way that you manipulate so that you're not competing on policy, but you're competing by fixing the system, um, that moves you towards a one-party state. In, the, in, the, in a multi-party system, um, you know, we only have two, I think it'd be better if we had more, but in a multi-party system, you have to compete on policy. The other reason why it's bad is, is obvious. In a one-party system, you can't have, you won't meaningfully have democracy. Um, and by the way, I'm just gonna pause and I'm gonna say that I think that democracy is a good thing, or rather that I think democracy in the United States would be a good thing, that, d democr that democracy is a good thing and that it makes sense to try to make our system more democratic. And I think that's something which is worth saying because I think we, it's very easy to say, oh, democracy, shemocracy, it's all the same thing, it doesn't matter, you know, um, the same seven oligarchs rule the world. Not yet, you know, not, 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 not yet they don't, right? Not yet they don't. Um, so it makes, it, it, it's much, it's, it's important to say democracy, if you believe it, I mean if you guys want to like charge the stage now because you think democracy is terrible, this is a good moment for that actually. Um, but no, not in this speech, I just mean in world history, you'll be on the side of history. But what's good about democracy, what's fundamentally good about democracy is that it allows you to have a country. Because if, here's the thing about democracy, we all make mistakes, remember what I said about the founders? We all make mistakes all the time. That's what it's like to be human, right? I mean, your girlfriend may tell you otherwise, you know, before she breaks up with you, then she'll tell you the truth. But it's, it, being human is about making mistakes all the time. What democracy does is that it converts our individual fallibility into a collective sense that as a society we're moving forward. Every two years or every four years, we elect people, we blame them for our own mistakes, in the confidence that we get to do it two years or four years again. The reason that seems so banal is that we take it for granted. The problem with a one-party state or the problem with a dictatorship which is, which is associated with one person is that you lose track of the future. You don't actually have, you don't know what's going to happen next. And that uncertainty affects and undermines everything, right? So democracy is good for many reasons, but one reason democracy is a good thing is it allows you to know that the United States of America or some other country is going to continue to exist. That you will be voting or your children in the same country your parents did or your children will be voting in the same country that you did. Okay. Lesson number, lesson number four is uh, take responsibility for the fate of the world. Sorry, for, that's too much. Just for the face of the world. Take responsibility for the face of the world. What does this mean? By the face of the world, I mean just literally the three-dimensional world. One of the things that we understand about 1933, again, I'm gonna stay close to Hitler's takeover, is that it matters a lot whether you paint a swastika on a wall or not. 
And it matters a lot whether other people allow that swastika to stay on the wall. What's visible becomes thinkable, and what's thinkable becomes doable. Right? And so it matters a great deal in the United States of America in 2018 whether you paint swastikas on the wall and whether your friends allow them to stay on the wall. Because what's visible becomes thinkable, and what's thinkable becomes doable. Now, in the 20th century, this was a lesson which was entirely about the three-dimensional world, because that's where, that's where we lived. Um, in the 21st century, this is also a lesson about the internet. We spend a lot of time in a different space, and one of our problems is we don't think about it as a space. We think about it as a kind of exception where the rules don't apply. One of our problems and one of the things that I think bit us pretty hard in 2016 was that we were very careless about how we were treating that space. I'm going to say more about this later, later in the lecture, but I'd just, like to, I'd just like to drop this idea now that the internet is a space that we all have to share. Each of us has a certain amount of responsibility for the trace that we leave in the internet. We really, we should be thoughtful about how, about how we treat it because it's something, it's a kind of environment which we share with everyone and the things we do in the internet really have consequences. Okay, number five is remember professional ethics. Okay, ho-hum, professional ethics. Um, what's a concentration camp? Concentration camp is a place where businessmen go for cheap labor. Concentration camp is a place where, uh, which is run by lawyers. A concentration camp is a place that only exists because bureaucrats make exceptions to rules. A concentration camp is a place where doctors carry out experiments. That's what a concentration camp is. A concentration camp is not possible without people from multiple professions violating professional ethics. What's a show trial? Show trial requires judges, prosecutors, defense lawyers, all of them to play a role, all of them to abandon the basic tenets of professional ethics. It's extremely hard to get to those totalitarian extremes of concentration camps and show trials if people have some sense of professional ethics. Professional ethics set bounds on what's acceptable and what's not. Um, and also, professional ethics connect you to a community like doctors or lawyers um, or, for that matter, civil servants who can have some kind of a code and who can help each other feel, help one another feel like they're not alone in this, right? That we should take some kind of a stand about this. And it's interesting, by the way, in America right now, that there are very, very many, especially doctors and lawyers, who are looking back at the way doctors and lawyers behaved in Germany in the 1930s and drawing lessons from that, which strikes me as being a very good thing. Now, the, the, primary, the primary professional ethic, or the professional ethic um, that, the, the, the fundamental professional ethic that goes away when the others aren't respected is the rule of law. Right, so going back to my examples, a, concent a, a concentration camp. The technical definition of a concentration camp is a place where the law does not apply. That's a concentration camp. A show trial is a public spectacle where the law is perverted. The fundamental professional ethic is the rule of law, right? And that's, and that's I think, the right way for us to be thinking, for example, about the Mueller investigation. The Mueller investigation is not some kind of spectacle where like Mueller faces up against Trump. Um, the Mueller investigation is a question of whether we as a society, and it's a question, um, are still going to be able to function in terms of 
the rule of law or not. Um, which brings me to lesson six and lesson seven, which I'm going to talk about together, which are be wary of paramilitaries and be reflective if you must be armed. Um, so I'm going to tell you how these lessons work together, and I'm going to give you an example of what I mean by, by being reflective. So be wary of paramilitaries, be reflective if you must be armed. Why is that so important? Because in a rule of law state, in a rule of law state like Germany was and ceased to be, and like we are, but we're hovering, in a rule of law state, the government has a monopoly on legitimate violence. Like that's what government means, is the government has a monopoly on legitimate violence. If you want to get rid of a rule of law state, there are two ways to go about it. One is that you invite paramilitaries, that is people who are not part of the government, you invite them to perform acts of violence in public because that undermines everyone's confidence in law and in security. It makes them doubt that things like democracy can possibly work. They ask for a strongman and so on and so forth. The other thing you can do is you can take the forces of law and order, like the police, and you can change them. Um, you can invite them to do things which aren't really about enforcing law anymore. And so, for example, in the case of Nazi Germany, to give a drastic example, who shot the most people in the Holocaust? The, regu the regular policemen. The regular policemen, not the SS. The regular policemen. So that what, the, what was special about the Nazi German state was that it did both of these things. It brought paramilitaries, called the SS and the SA, into the state, and it brought the police, and also the army to some extent, closer to the SS. So that by the time the Second World War began in 1939, there was one pyramid of power, which was a kind of hybrid, where the SS and the police were all mixed up together, and they became what Himmler called racial, racial warriors. Now, I want to give you an example of being reflective because I just I, I like it so very much, and it comes from Mr. Smiles, who is the um, who's the policeman standing outside the door um, right now. As I, I I couldn't I went out there to wait because the, I couldn't deal with all the flash bulbs in here. So I was standing out there and I was listening to Mr. Smiles talk to his colleague, and this is what he said, um, which struck me as amazing. I want to share it. He said um, he's pointing to this crowd, he's pointing to the audience, and he said, uh, "This is where the magic happens." academia, research. We've lost sight of that, especially in this administration. I thought, wow, that's pretty reflective. <laughs> um, um, so anyway, there's a, there's a lovely example out there right now. Um, you can say hi to him on your way out. Okay, um, and, it, and that, that goes very nicely into the next lesson, um, which, is, which is stand out. So stand out is like number one, don't obey in advance. It sounds easy and it's actually really hard, or it sounds simple, but it's actually pretty psychically complicated. Stand out is about freedom. So what does it mean to be free? It doesn't mean you talk about freedom a lot. I mean, let's face it, that will be a little bit too easy. Um, and that's, that's the American way. You talk about freedom a lot, you talk about liberty a lot. But what does it actually mean to be free? I mean, can it possibly be as simple as just talking about it? I don't think so. Um, that there was a Polish poet who won the Nobel Prize called Wisława Szymborska, who said, um, wrote in a poem, it's called The World Through a Grain of Sand, we know ourselves only insofar as we have been tested. Right? Uh, so just talking about it is probably not the thing. Is it free? Are you free? Here's another thing which bothers me. 
Are you free if you're afraid of the same things as the person next to you? Is that freedom? I worry about this a lot. So, I mean, just I'll pick on my own demographic. Uh, white men, when they think about violence, they think about Muslims and blacks. But if you're a white man and you're going to be killed by violence in this country, it's almost going to be certainly by another white man. But that's not what we think of, right? And how, why is that? If you're afraid of the same thing as the person next to you, is that, maybe that's a suggestion that you're not free. Maybe that's a suggestion that you've been successfully profiled and manipulated, right? If you have the same fears as people who look like you, isn't that a sign that perhaps you're not free because you're not figuring things out for yourself? I mean, the test of freedom that I give in, in eight stand out, it's very simple, but it's, I think, deceptively simple. Do you feel uncomfortable? Because the thing about an act of freedom, I think, is that you're always going to feel uncomfortable because you're always going to be doing something which is against the drift of what's going on around you. And that always feels a little bit strange. So that's a kind of daily test. Did it feel strange today or was I just with everyone else? If you were just with everyone else, then there's reason, I think, to worry. And of course, there's power in that feeling of discomfort because if you're willing to feel a little bit uncomfortable, especially if you're working from a place of relative privilege, if you're willing to, to feel a little bit uncomfortable, that makes it a little bit easier for the person next to you to feel a little bit uncomfortable. And in that way, people help one another to be free. It seems to me this is a very important lesson for a lot of us right now because most of us right now, not all of us, I know, but most of us right now in this country are not facing very much risk. We could make little gestures all the time. And the thing which holds us back is usually ourselves, the sense that we don't want to be, we don't want to stand out too much. We don't want to do, we don't want to say something that sounds like it's a little crazy. We don't want to feel like other people might make fun of us for, for being free. But being free involves people making fun of you. It always does. If no one's saying that's a little strange or that's a little weird or what are you doing, you're probably not a, probably not a free person. Um, Number nine, be kind to our language. Number 10, believe in truth. Number 11, investigate. I'm going to talk about these together. So I think that the, the facts have a very profound connection to freedom. Um, if, if in order to be free, you have to be able to defend yourself against power. And what do you defend yourself against power with? you defend yourself against power with the real world. That is, you can defend yourself against power if you can talk about things that are happening in the real world in a way that will allow you to create allies, build alliances, get other people to think that maybe you're right. If you start from the position, there is no real world, there's no factuality, everything's a matter of opinion, how on earth can you function politically? You can't. How on earth can you win against power? If you say there's no truth, power will also say, yes, there's no truth. And power will always have a better spectacle than you. And then you will win. Power has a better spectacle than you. That's the United States in 2018. It has a better spectacle. What it doesn't have are facts, right? That's what it doesn't have. Facts are weapons of the weak, but hint, weapons of the weak are better than no weapons at all. Right? Weapons of the weak are better than conceding everything to the strong. If you concede that there are no facts, that there's no real world, you're conceding everything to the strong right at the outset because they will always have a better spectacle. They will always have the spectacle. Now, um, something else I want to say about this is that this position, okay, 
there's a position of total doubt, you know, that I'm skeptical about this, I know I'm skeptical of Fox News, and I'm skeptical of ESPN, and I'm skeptical of the deans of my university, and I'm skeptical of mom and dad, and I'm skeptical of everything. That's a very easy position, um, and that position of total skepticism blends into total naivete. Because if you don't believe in anything, if that's your pose, if you don't believe in anything, you're gonna, the, the one thing that you're gonna believe in is the thing that makes you feel good. And that's how you lose. Because the people who are smarter than you, for example, on the internet, don't have very much trouble figuring out what makes you feel good and giving that thing to you, right? So when you doubt everything, all that's left is the stuff that pleases you, that affirms you, that's all that's left. And then you're very, very, very disempowered, right? So that pose of total cynicism, which I realize feels kind of cool, um, that pose of total cynicism is actually totally disempowering. And here comes my word to the young. Okay, this pose of being skeptical about everything, that might have been cool in the 1990s when I was young, <laughs> but I think it has aged itself out by now. Okay, what has happened since the 1980s is that the cool pose of the 1990s has then been taken over by Russian oligarchs who are now selling it back to you. I really think we need to get through this. I think that the young people have to valorize the real world, right? Have to make the real world interesting, have to make investigation cool. I, I, I can't figure out how to do this, and frankly, it's, I don't think it's my job. I think it's the, I think it's the job of you. Because if, like, if another generation comes along and says, we doubt everything, that's just, I mean, there's just something, I'm sorry, there's something sad about that. That was already done. That was the 1990s. That's already happened, right? You guys need to do something different. And the thing that's different, which would help our republic a lot, would be that if you guys could figure out how to make the real world factuality sexy. That would be a good thing. Okay, I'm just gonna lay that in front of you and you know, take it where you will. Um, okay, so the, um, the, 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 the next thing I wanted to say about this is that so I'm not joking about the internet, by the way. So there, there, there are reasons to be concerned that the internet, that the, the, the way we should be thinking about the internet is that it is basically authoritarian as opposed to basically enlightening. Why, do we, why would we think that? I mean, aside from the fact that the spread of the internet has, been, has coincided with the spread of authoritarianism around the world, right? And then people say, well, there's some good news from Africa about democracy. That's right, and Africa is the continent with the lowest internet penetration, right? Why is it that the people, the generation which was raised in the internet is the generation which is least interested in democracy and most supports government by strongmen? I don't think there's any particular reason to think that the internet is helping democracy. On the contrary, I think there are great reasons to worry about it, um, or in particular reasons to worry about how we use it because at the end of the day, it comes down to us how we choose to use it. But, but the, thing which is, the, thing which is, the thing which is most troubling about it um, in recent times is the way that the internet uh, helps us to define an us and a them. And it helps us to define an us and a them entirely within our own country. So if you think back to the election of 2016, there are a lot of things to say about it. But one thing I think it's fair to conclude is that basically nobody in the United States in 2016 was thinking about any other countries at all, 
If you, the, the, a quantitative study of, the, of, of, of major television news was done, which found out that the candidates were talking about foreign countries less than 1% of the time, right? Um, and if you remove get along with Putin, get along with Putin, get along with Putin, it goes down to 0% on one side. Um, but people weren't talking about other countries. We were only talking about ourselves, right? And we were talking about ourselves as enemies, as enemies. Um, the Russian social bots on election day 2016 were firing under what hashtag? Um, and I'm sure some of you saw it in your own Twitter feeds. They were firing under the hashtag war against Democrats. Did it even occur to anyone that that was a foreign country doing that? No, because it was pretty much normal that we were thinking about making war against one another. That's a consequence. I mean, it's, a, it's our fault, but that's a consequence also of how the technology can be made to work. I mean, in the strange, and this is something I write about at length in, in Road Done Freedom, I can't spell it all out here, but it's a very striking fact that in 2016, the United States of America managed to lose the first major cyber war in history by allowing a foreign state to choose its president. That's remarkable. But what's more remarkable is that we didn't even notice what was happening, right? And this goes to a fundamental question about what war actually is. When you think of war and you, you think of combat, that's not actually what war is. Clausewitz, who is the, most, the, the leading student of war, the leading theorist of war, says that war is altering the enemy's will so that the enemy does what you want. Combat isn't war, combat is a means to an end. What if, and this is what Russian military doctrine has said since 2013, what if you can break the enemy's will or bend the enemy's will without combat? What if you can do it entirely over the internet? What if you can have a cyber budget which costs less than one American F-35 and change the American presidential election? What if, right? It's not a what if. That actually happened. And one of the reasons why it happened was in 2016, we were so unable to think ourselves back into the real world and so trapped, so trapped too many of us. Um, and I don't have to recite all of this, right? Like you all know that on Facebook, the, tw the top 20 fake stories were more widely read than the top 20 news stories in the six weeks before. The election, you all, we all know this, right? We all, we all know um, that there were, there were robot campaigns, bot campaigns, some Russian, some not Russian, targeted at voters in sensitive states right at the last minute. We all, we all know that these things actually took place. Um, the, the odd thing, the odd thing is, um, is that this could happen without us noticing it. And I'm just gonna close on this, but it'd be odder still if we managed not to notice now that we lost a war. Because the only you don't you don't the, the countries only learn from war, and they only learn when they realize they've lost a war. It's not that America never loses wars. Um, we've lost a whole number in my lifetime, but America is very bad at recognizing that it's lost wars. It would be a good this would, now would be a good time for reflection, right? About no, because only only if you realize what's happened to you, do you have a chance to reflect upon it. Okay, that's enough for those lessons. Um, so number, 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 um, number 12, 13, 14. 12 is make eye contact and small talk. 13, practice corporeal politics. 14, establish a private life. So I've, I've already dwelled on this. Democracy happens in the real world, right? There has never been a democracy which hasn't involved physical space. Democracy begins with the, with the Greeks in the real world. Um, the average American spends 11 hours a day in front of a screen, right? Which is a terrifying 
figure, and like to all of you who are not looking at screens right now, like thank you for improving the average. To, all, to those of you who are, you, oh, okay. Um, so uh, the, so I, I, and I have this idea that if it weren't 11 hours, but 10 hours and 15 minutes, the outcome of the election probably would have been different. I mean, just imagine that, imagine that we could somehow get it down from 11 hours to nine hours, right? How, how, how much that would change things. But the point of these lessons is that there are certain things that happen in the real world in three dimensions that don't actually happen over the internet. So, I mean, those of you, you guys know what Facebook is? It's like, it's, it's something that, no, it's a serious question because it's like, it's mainly something that middle-aged people use to hemorrhage data. Um, but I'm so, um, but no, that's, I mean, that's what it is. That's the Facebook business model. But I imagine some of you young folks know, have heard of it. Anyway, um, so, the, 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 thing about, the thing about the thing about Facebook or other platforms is that what never happens on Facebook is that anyone convinces anyone, right? There have been quintillions of interactions on Facebook and not a single one of them has been, you have convinced me with your rational arguments, <laughs> right? That has never happened, right? Isn't that interesting that that has never happened? It's not that it's easy to convince people in the real world. It's, all, it's hard to convince people in the real world. But at least you have some kind of a chance. And also, at least you know you're talking to someone. right? Like, I'm glad that I'm talking to you. Like, like when you smile, when you don't smile, when you talk to your friend. I like that because I know you're not a bot. right? Or if you are, you are a really, really good bot. <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm, yeah, there you go. All right. See, I'm just pretty sure you're not, right? That, that there thing, like that thing you just did, like that could only, he, he made a joke, camera. He made a physical joke, which you didn't catch. Um, the, um, it was perfectly clean and suitable for children. Um, the, um, the, the, though there's like, you have, you, have, you have a fan base out there. I just need to make sure that you get to your fan base. Um, the, the, the point is that there are things that happen in the real world that don't happen over the internet. One of them is the serendipity of physical contact. When you go on marches, you meet people that you wouldn't meet otherwise, and you make plans that you wouldn't have met otherwise. It's not, it's not an accident that so many of the people who are running for office now in the US started out by going on a march, right? Things happen in the real world that don't happen in other places. That's what I mean by, by corporeal politics. Also, this seems simple, but you just feel better. Like if, you, if, the, if, the, if the politics that you undertake actually gets you away from the screen and out with other people, it's a little frightening at first, but at the end of it, you feel better. So many of us like, will spend the day on Facebook, whatever platform, do absolutely nothing, feel like we did something, and at the end of the day, you feel tired and lonely. Right? Whereas if you actually meet with people, then you tend, then you tend, to, feel, then you tend to feel better. Um, the other thing about this is that we're a very polarized society, right? extremely polarized, and that's a very big problem for democracy, the polarization. But the polarization is largely virtual rather than real. That is to say, people do disagree about things profoundly in this country, right? About abortion, gun control, I know. But since so much of the discussion takes place on the internet, the other side isn't real, right? The other side is presented as basically as demons. You know, so peop people treat the other side, so instead of having a discussion, not that we have to agree, but instead of having a discussion, what happens is that you're presented with the other side in this kind of drastic parody form. And the same goes, by the way, for issues like immigration or Muslims, right? The people who are most afraid of Muslims in this country and in Europe are the people who don't see them. The people who are most afraid of immigrants are the people who live in places where there are no immigrants, which at first seems like 
a puzzle. But the answer is, they are in fact in touch with Muslims and immigrants, but they're in touch with the image of Muslims and immigrants that the internet gives to them, right? So polarization is real, but it's, ra it's made radically worse by the internet. If you were in contact with real people, um, radical polarization becomes much less, much less likely. Okay, number, <clears throat> number 15. Is, is a light one, contribute to good causes. So this, is a, this goes to the question which we were talking about at dinner, like what do we actually do? The things that we have to do would be things where we know something about the issue, we care about the issue, the issue gets us in touch with real people in the real world, and we can keep at it every day. That's the trick. The way authoritarianism works, especially in our postmodern world, is that it bombards you with bad news all the time. It makes you feel overwhelmed and you think, what can I do about all this? I mean, how can I fix North Korea and Syria and the EPA and the Commerce Department? And you know, how can I get Melania another job? It's all—it's overwhelming, right? Um, and and natural. But see, the mistake here is none of us has to fix everything. We're not—you're not—we're not Superman. Like none of us has to fix everything. If each of us consistently works on some small part of it, that's—that would actually be enough consistently, right? So the, the trick is to keep at it day after day, even if the news cycle makes you feel bad. And there's a trick to making the news cycle not make you feel bad, which is to watch the news less, right? Because it's actually way more important that you're out in the real world doing your little bit of good than it is that you hear you know, Fox and Friends that morning. And I mean, it, no, I mean, we spend a lot of time watching these televised talk shows, or at least pe some people do. I'm looking at where is he? Okay. A lot of us spend time watching these, and, but it doesn't, if you lose, if you miss it for four days, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. But if you don't do your little good thing for four days, that matters a lot in the world, right? But this lesson contributes to good causes. It's a very simple one. It just says, pick a charity and contribute to it on auto pay. So that time, on those days when you really do feel bad and don't do anything, you can at least feel like I'm helping other people do something, right? And that may seem really simple, like subscribing to newspapers, you know? I'm not gonna ask you, cause like camera's on, it's kind of embarrassing, but we should really all be subscribing to the newspapers that we read. We should all do that, it makes a huge difference. And it only costs 25, $30 a year. And if you're a student, there are special rates. It really doesn't cost very much and it makes a huge difference. So if everybody gives a, puts, puts one charity on auto pay, it doesn't, we're not gonna notice it, those of us who have money, right? Those, I mean, I'm not asking everyone to do this, but those of us who have money, we'll put one charity on auto pay, everybody, right? It makes a huge difference, right? Now what we do is like the, the, ACLS gets a huge, the ACLU gets a huge amount of money in bursts. Okay, that's great. But what if we all, you know, what if we all did this? Okay, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm beating that point to the ground. Number 16. Um, Learn from peers in other countries. So there's this question like, can it happen here? That is a dumb question um, because there is no here. There isn't a here. There's an it, but there's no here. There's nothing about magical about America, which means that democracy has to thrive here and not other places. Um, there's, just, that just, there's no here, there's an it. The, I mean, the transition to authoritarian rule, that's true, that's real, that's happening all over the world. But it's happening as one phenomenon. It's connected. What happens in Russia and Turkey and India and Poland and Hungary is connected to what happens to America. It's all one 
phenomenon, right? And therefore, the best or one of the best ways to get out in front of what's happening is to listen to people from India or Turkey or Poland or Russia or Ukraine who have tried to do something because they will be two or three or four or five years ahead of you in experience. And that can be really useful. Now, that is totally not the American way, right? The American way is to say, we've got a great democracy and let us tell you how to build one, right? Um, and here's a tank. That's the American way. But I mean, in terms, of, in terms of being real, in terms of seeing the world for the way it's actually working, um, what's happening is that these trends that we observe in the United States actually appear in other countries first. And in the case of Russia, are actively exported back to us, which means that if you followed Russia in 2010, 2011, you'd have a pretty good chance of knowing what was going to happen in the US in 2015, 2016. It's actually startling um, to what extent events in Russia pre prepare us if we'd been paying attention for events in the United States. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, which, to which we paid all too little attention, in many ways was a rehearsal of, or even part, an element of, the campaign which Russia is carrying out against the United States of America. Right down to the details, the same social bots were used, the same propaganda tactics were used, the same malware is in the Ukrainian power grid as is in our power grid. In 2014, they tried to hack the Ukrainian election. 2016, they succeeded in hacking ours. Um, so the, the learning from peers in other countries is very good because it's, it's humbling and it's also extremely helpful. Um, now, the, the, I'll just give you one example of this. In April of 2016, I wrote the first article of what is now known as the Russia story. I was the person who broke that story um, in the United States. Why was that? Because I wasn't living mentally in the US, I was living mentally in Russia and Ukraine. And if, you're, if you were following the Russian press, it was totally obvious that the, that the elites of the Russian Federation were supporting a candidate, not for the presidency at that point, for the Republican nomination, right? That they, they hadn't even been, the, they hadn't been the conventions yet. So, um, if you're paying attention to other places, then sometimes things become clear that aren't clear here. Who predicted that Trump would win in this country? I mean, African Americans. And who else? Russian journalists, <laughs> Ukrainian journalists, because they'd seen this kind of thing happen before, right? Who, when they looked at Brexit in 2016, thought that Brexit was going to pass? Russians and Ukrainians, right? Because they'd seen this kind of thing happen before. Okay, number 17, number 18. Listen for dangerous words. Be calm when the unthinkable arrives. So these are lessons about a particularly critical moment when a leader is able to push a republic into an authoritarian state, where a leader takes advantage of something that maybe really happens, like a terrorist attack, for example, or a war, takes advantage of that moment to change the system, right? And the way that this happens, it has two steps. In the first step, the leader primes you to think that the enemies are mainly at home, right? So the leader talks about, you know, blacks as sons of bitches or establishes a denunciation office for Mexican immigrants or um, changes an office of the investigation of terrorism into an office of investigation of Islamic terrorism, just to take three true examples from our own country in the last few months. The leader instructs you how the enemy is actually at home until you get used to that idea. Then when something happens, um, the leader asks you to accept a state of emergency. 
in that state of emergency where you give up your civil rights, you know, because you feel like you have to, because there's fear and there's grief and so on, that then becomes permanent. This is page three of the dictator's playbook. Page one and two are filled with attractive illustrations. This is page three of the dictator's playbook. Um, when, when the, 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 the prototype is the Reichstag fire in Nazi Germany of 1933. When the, when the German parliament burns, no one knows who actually did it, doesn't matter. Hitler is able to blame his enemies on the left. And from that point forward, there is no longer the rule of law in Germany. Hitler asks for a temporary suspension of the civil rights and constitutional rights of Germans. And that, that, temporary, uh, that temporary condition becomes permanent. Right? This is the way it works. And here's the thing. Every aspiring dictator knows this. And every person who, is, who advises authoritarian rulers knows this. Something happened very similar to this in Russia in 1999. Something happened very similar to this in Turkey two summers ago. Everybody knows that this is the playbook, which means that if you want to keep your republic, you have to know yourself that this is the playbook. And you have to talk about it and think about it in advance. So when something happens, when the unthinkable arrives, you don't give in to your impulse to say, yes, I'm afraid I need a leader. Yes, I'm grieving. I'm happy to give up my rights. You have to think, I'm afraid, that's normal, I'm grieving, that's human. But it's precisely now that I need to protect my rights because it's precisely now that my rights are at their most vulnerable. Those are lessons 17 and 18. I'm gonna leave number, number 20 to you. Um, I'm gonna finish with number 19, which is, which is be a patriot. So what I had in mind um, with patriotism is something, something very specific. I'll be back. Um, I'm sure you thought it was going to be something much more exciting than a little book. Um, what, I, what I have in mind by patriotism is something very simple, that loving your country involves imagining your country according to the principles which itself claims to uphold that there's a difference between nationalism, which is easy, oh so easy, and patriotism, which is hard. It's easy to be a nationalist. To be a nationalist, all I have to do is say, you Americans are wonderful, everything is great, right? And who doesn't want to hear that? Who doesn't want to hear that, honestly? To be a patriot, you have to say, the United States of America, or whatever my country is, the United States of America has principles and partaking in the United States of America means inching it towards those principles. That's hard. That's hard, but it's also citizenship, right? Nationalism is disempowering. If I tell you that what you're doing already, everything is fine, that is how I take power from you. If you believe instead that it's your job as a citizen not to obey in advance, try to defend factuality, think of the little things you can do day to day to expand civil society, then I can't rule you. I mean, maybe I can govern you, but I can't rule you. Authoritarian regime change is then impossible, right? Patriotism in that sense, in that sense. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna read you a couple lines from this and then, and then I'll be done. So patriotism and nationalism. A nationalist encourages us to be our worst, and then tells us that we are the best. A nationalist, although endlessly brooding on power, victory, defeat, revenge, 
wrote George Orwell, tends to be uninterested in what happens in the real world. Nationalism is relativist, since the only truth is the resentment we feel when we contemplate others. As the novelist Danilo Kish put it, nationalism has no universal values, aesthetic or ethical. A patriot, by contrast, wants the nation to live up to its ideals, which means asking us to be our best selves. A patriot must be concerned with the real world, which is the only place where his country can be loved and sustained. A patriot has universal values, standards by which he judges his nation, always wishing it well and wishing that it would do better. Democracy failed in Europe in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and it is failing not only in much of Europe, but in many parts of the world today. It is that history and experience that reveals to us the dark range of our possible futures. A nationalist will say, it can't happen here, which is the first step toward disaster. A patriot says, it could happen here, but that we will stop it. Thank you.